Hey, listeners, it's 2024, and we are so excited for everything ahead this year. If you haven't done so already, make sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders, where you can get access to bonus episodes. We've already released 18 of them, and they come out twice a month. Plus, you can get access to ad-free episodes and our private Discord server to hang out with other members of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. I got a vaccine the other day, and I asked the nurse giving me the vaccine if they moonlight as IT. You know why? No. Because, Paul, they were excellent at installing antivirus. (laughs) (laughs) That's real bad. Yeah, Yeah. that's real bad. (laughs) Yet I got very excited about it when I read it. You really did. Yeah, it's... The, a, a brilliant, a, an amazing combination of shame and, and joy that you had there. So I'm looking for a calcium pun, Matt. And I have to tell you, the title of this page, 100 plus cracking calcium puns, a bony fied laugh ride. And I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> so I just want to let you know, this is at ogpuns.com. These, and these are all like chemistry centric, which I like. So Matt, why did the calcium go to therapy? I don't know. It had too many unresolved bonds. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> All right, Rahul, why was the calcium so brave? I don't know. It had a lot of backbone. Not not as good as the bonus one, but still. Uh, there's a hundred of these. So the, our listeners can go and research at their leisure. What was the tagline for the page again? I really like that. A hundred plus cracking calcium puns. A bony fied laugh riot. So it has it all. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Hi, Paul. (laughs) Hi, Matt. How are you? Good. Tonight, this is a hotcakes episode, so we have everybody's favorite whiz kid epidemiologist slash hospitalist, Dr. Rahul Ganatra, with us here to discuss just, uh, you know, a mishmash of articles that uh, caught our eye in the recent past. Uh, Paul, before we get to Rahul, can you remind the audience, what is it that we do on Curbsiders? I I will say that we are the internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical curls and practice-changing knowledge. And I I feel more comfortable saying uh, expert interviews because we do have Rahul Ganatra with us, who I I view as a verifiable expert. So even though I I would never count us as that, Matt, I think that we have someone who's an expert in critical appraisal, so I think that our tagline still stands. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Rahul, how are you? Happy New Year. Hi, I'm great. Happy New Year to you all. How are you? I'm excited for this episode because we have we have a little bit of critical appraisal. We are we are piloting or debuting our corrections and omissions section um, because we had some great emails from listeners just pointing things out uh, that you know, and we want to publicly say, hey, we you were right, we were wrong, or we're updating our facts in real time. We're updating our knowledge in real time, so uh, we will get to that. And then, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about transfusion. We're going to talk about um, antivirals for COVID-19, and then um, whether or not some uh, phenylephrine works as an over-the-counter cough and cold medicine. So great show here. To start us off, though, Rahul, 
Is, you know, tell me about iron deficiency. My sense is that uh, in women, we should probably just screen everyone with a hemoglobin. If that's normal, they're not iron deficient. And iron deficient is not that common in in women. Uh, Rahul, what do you think? Is there, has anyone written about this recently? Gosh, it's almost like you're setting me up to talk about something here. Um, so yeah, I, I, Matt, I'm going to start out with my first hot take of the evening. And I do sort of consider this uh, appropriate in the corrections and omissions section, because in my view, we all kind of passed over this this paper, and this didn't really get much uh, airtime. And so I think it's important to kind of talk about this, because it's, it's a really important question that affects a lot of people. So um, I am going to just briefly introduce everyone to a research letter uh, from a June 2023 issue of JAMA. And this was a research letter that was uh, authored by uh, Dr. Angela Wayland, uh, also known as the Shematologist on Twitter, uh, and colleagues, uh, which included uh, Curbsiders Digest uh, maven Alex Chaitoff. Um, and the letter was titled, The Prevalence of Iron Deficiency and Iron Deficiency Anemia in U.S. Females Aged 12 to 21 Years, 2003 to 2020. And the study asked the basically the exact question that's in the title, uh, what is the prevalence of iron deficiency with or without anemia among young women in the United States? And it used uh, study. Uh, it used data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES, uh, which is uh, designed to be nationally representative. And basically, what they found was that uh, using a sort of conservative ferritin cutoff of 25, 40 percent of young women in the United States were iron deficient. And using a slightly less conservative cutoff of a ferritin of 50, 75% of the women in this uh, sample were iron deficient. And despite that, only 6% of women in the sample were anemic. And then the sort of, the, you could talk a lot about what is normal, what are the normal ranges, where do they come from? And uh, Dr. Wayland uh, has a tutorial on this paper sort of summarizing all that. But one of the, the features of this study that stuck out the most to me was that among iron deficient young women, almost 85% of them had a normal hemoglobin. And that was defined at 13, 13 and a half, 14, what, do you remember what they used? They used the WHO definitions of anemia, which were uh, different cutoffs for men and women. I don't remember the exact uh, number for the lower limit of normal for women. Um, yeah. You can find I'm, that, we'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, Paul, as America's primary care physician, I have you seen different numbers based on different places you've worked? Like, or, or just... You yeah, know. it feels like there's some variability. I, I'm not going to be able to get the hard numbers, but yeah, I feel like the reference yeah. range changes depending on where you're at. Yeah, I'll say anywhere. They, I've seen them set a hemoglobin of 12 or more as normal for a woman. Um, it just, and so I'm not sure if they're doing that by age or or just gender or whatever. But uh, just vibes. I, I, yeah, I've just I've seen different different cutoffs. But yeah, so so basically, this dovetails with the other correction and omission that I wanted to talk about because it's iron supplementation. Uh, which you know we've talked about many times on the show, and Rahul, anything else you wanted to say about this paper before I get into the in, into the iron supplementation? Yes, just to answer your question, the the hemoglobin cutoff was twelve uh, grams was per 12. deciliter. Yeah, and it uh, raises the question, you know, is a hemoglobin really an adequate screening tool for iron deficiency? Yeah, and uh, you know that's something that affects a huge proportion of the population. We should be thinking more about. This first appeared on the show back in, I think, 2017 when we first started talking about iron and iron deficiency. And we've done many episodes and we've sort of talked about this every other day dosing of iron um, for at least going on like five or six years now. And Dr. Tony Brew, uh, 
friend of the show, uh, Rahul's real life friend, who because they live <laughs> they live in the same city, work at the same place. Uh, so he he has a Substack now, uh, among many other things that he does, and he did this great like post on Substack where he put together just all this information about uh, oral iron supplementation and just talking about how, for whatever reason, this very small trial uh, that happened in 2017 with like 60 patients that that were iron deficient women who were only mildly anemic, like uh, hemoglobin 12 or 13 or so, um, that speculated about why every other day dosing was better um, got everybody to start just doing every other day iron dosing. And since that time, um, I hadn't really given it too, too much thought, but uh, there's been a couple more randomized trials in the, in the, in the 2020s um, or a couple randomized trials in the 2020s, all showing sort of no clear benefit uh, for treating anemia with a daily versus every other day dosing even on side effects and even on hepcidin levels, Paul. It's like, you know, that was the whole thing. This, it was first in 2015, there was this study by Moretti et al where they looked at, you know, the fractional absorption of iron if they gave every uh, every day versus alternate day dosing iron. And, and it looked like alternate day was this like sweet spot where it would work better and and presumably give the patients less side effects. So everyone has just sort of, gone on that. And Tony actually coined, because because this was on the show and he does a little bit of math about how many listeners we have and how many uh, residents and physicians there are in the US, that this could have changed practice and we could have, Paul, potentially been responsible for this this uh, every other day iron, which I think is somewhat flattering and also because it's not necessarily correct, not the best thing. <laughs> But uh, Paul, so far, any comments, questions, concerns? Oh uh, yeah, no, so many. Like, I think it's a nice thought. So, <laughs> so certainly, I mean, we I think we broadened awareness of the study, and like I, I think probably we did have some impact on on practice. Like if, if we're if we're being honest and giving a hard appraisal, I will say a couple of things in terms of the every other day dosing. Like I was not like, oh, this is exciting because it works even better. I think my excitement was more about the idea of being able to minimize side effects and having something that is more tolerable to patients that work just as well. And maybe yeah. and, and, and that's not what the study was kind of going for. But on the other hand. Anecdotally, my patients are like, oh, God, I hate taking iron. It backs me up so much. Like, I hear that over and over again. So I know that, that there are these meta-analyses and some trials that suggest maybe it's not all that different. But I, I can tell you, it, it seems different to me. And I know we're not based, again, we're not mm -hmm. practicing bias-based medicine. But I was sort of less, I don't care about hepcidin. I mean, I care, but I don't care. Like, it's great yeah. for, for people who are excited about mechanistic stuff, wonderful. But like, I want to know, is their anemia better? Do they feel better? And can they take the medication? And this seemed like a way to get them to take it to still achieve the same effects as daily dosing. And yeah. my suspicion is a lot of people felt that same way. And it wasn't just our hearty endorsement of it, but also the fact that it seemed like a more humane way to treat patients who didn't like the daily uh, iron. You know, it, I, and I'll, I'll stop there for this last point. Because I, I also, I don't see people waving isopropyl alcohol swabs underneath everybody else's nose. Like Zofran around Dinocitron is not out of business because of us. So like there are, this caught on for more than just the fact that we kind of gave a raving yes. endorsement. There, there are other features that also made it attractive, I think, to the broader public. Yeah, it was, he didn't lay it all on our shoulders. He he did say it's just, you know, it's a neat piece of physiology. It has a mechanism that's, you know, just say hepcidin hep goes up. So you you give it less frequently. Um, the the paper from 2023, this by Sieben, Siebenthal et al was this placebo controlled where they did daily versus alternate day. And the daily was given for 90 days 
And then the alternate day was given for, you know, over 180 days. And at the end of that either 90 day period or 180, if you got it every day or 180 day period, the numbers looked pretty similar. So basically I think it's really up to you as a primary care physician, you know, if your patient has no problem taking it, they want to take iron every day, more power to them. They can do that if they want to take it every other day. Um, I think it, it may get be a little bit slower to get them, uh, their iron levels up, but, um, I don't think you're going to harm them with either strategy. And that's sort of my, my take home from this. And the other thing I just wanted to say, this hepcidin hypothesis to me, based on all the data that, that Tony presents, seems like it was either too simplistic or just frankly wrong. And that, uh, it's a little, I, I think it's probably more complicated than that just you take a bunch of iron, your hepcidin goes up, and then that means if you're taking it chronically, you know, every other day dosing is better. It just doesn't seem to pan out uh, when you look at the hard endpoints. So just wanted to put that together. So as Rahul said, there's a lot of iron deficiency out there. So prescribe oral iron, but up to you if you want to give it every day or every other day. The other correction I want to make is up until this very moment, I've been saying hepcidin. Is that just way out in left field? I think hepcidin, hepcidin, I probably say it wrong. I would, I would say, I think hepcidin is probably right. You both sound so sophisticated though. You're making me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, uh, the Winnie the Pooh meme. We're the, we're the ones we're in the tuxedo and, and Rahul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're the one with your head in the honey jar. Just a, just a shirt. Okay. And then in this, in this corrections and omissions section, this is another one that this one, we got this through an email from a listener named Andrew. Uh, Andrew works at MUSC, which is the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, I'm, I'm going to withhold his last name because we didn't get permission to mention his name on air, but he sent us like three citations and a Things We Do For No Reason article on corrected calcium, which was something that from medical school, you know, I was so proud of myself. I learned how to correct calcium and, uh, you know, have been teaching it ever since. Um, I don't know that I think about it as much these days, mostly because I'm working in the outpatient setting, it just, you know, maybe it comes up a little bit, but maybe it seemed to come up more when I was on the inpatient side. But Paul, had you been aware of this? This corrected calcium is no longer the thing to do? I was not aware. I, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. agree with that. I, I tend to chase down ionized calciums if I'm truly concerned, but not because I thought corrected calciums yeah. were out of favor. Rahul, what about you? Do you think this is like just a blind spot uh, for me and Paul, or is this something that you've known this is kind of up there where you're practicing. No, I, I think this is another one of those areas where uh, everyone, at least in my world, kind of learned about corrected calcium and then didn't think to question it going forward. And uh, the first time this popped into my head was recently, uh, Joel Toff uh, had tweeted something about how poorly correlated ionized calcium values are with uh, corrected calcium levels. And, mm. uh, you know, it can even be the difference between hyper and hypocalcemia. It can be really quite wide. So that kind of clued me in that this was a thing mm -hmm. and then, you know, subsequently learned more about it. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. And audience, I'm really excited for this sponsor because this is something very practical and maybe it's helped me or or maybe let's say a certain podcast host and their wife, they didn't realize that they were paying for two Amazon Prime memberships and a whole bunch of other subscriptions that they no longer used or needed. Yeah, this is my kind of thing. I do not like to waste money. Too many kids for that. Rocket Money, it's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
you can see all your subscriptions in one place. And if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap and I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They can even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. That is impressive. So stop wasting money on things you don't use and cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash curb. That's rocketmoney.com slash curb. Rocketmoney.com slash curb. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite. And you know, let's say your business gets to a certain size and then you start to notice cracks are emerging. Maybe the things that you used to do in a day are now taking a week. You have too many manual processes and you don't have one source of truth. Well, if this is you, then you have to know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. That's key performance indicators. And they come in one efficient system with one source of truth so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything that you need to grow all in one place. And, you know, as physicians, we love having all our information in one place. We love a good dashboard in our electronic record that gives us all the information we know. And NetSuite can do that kind of thing for your business. So right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash curbsiders. That's netsuite.com slash curbsiders to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash curbsiders. So the listener, Andrew, had just listened to episode number 281, which was hypercalcemia, where we did talk about this corrected calcium, but we were not aware of this uh, information at the time. So that's why we wanted to update this now. And there's this pains formula. That's the one that most people know where if you're using milligrams per deciliter, um, not millimoles, it's measured total calcium plus 0.8 times the difference in an albumin of four and whatever the patient's patient's albumin is. So basically, if the patient's albumin is very low, then you're going to have a bigger correction and uh, it'll raise whatever your estimated calcium was. The problem is when they've actually looked at this corrected calcium formula and how it performs, Paul, it actually performs worse the lower the albumin is. That's <laughs> that's bad. exactly when you need it to perform well, Paul. <laughs> uh-huh. That's when you would use it. So it seems problematic. And yeah. So like the uncorrected calcium, you know, so just the calcium that you just get correlates 70 to 80% of the time with ionized, also called free calcium. That's not great, but actually the corrected calcium does worse than that. So you, there's no point in, in correcting the calcium because it's going to perform worse. So 
if you really are worried about a calcium disorder, you can either go by the uncorrected calcium or you can get an ionized calcium to confirm because you don't want to harm the person by treating them for hypercalcemia when they actually don't have it or for treating them for hypocalcemia when they actually don't have it. Um, Rahul, any, uh, any comments, questions, concerns about this? No, I just feel like I, there's so much more I want to learn about this, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I can feel good about, uh, not taking the extra time required to do a corrected calcium. Now that I know this, what a gift to the third year. It's a gift. Like, <laughs> so you're welcome. What joy to have one less formula to, to have to have tucked in your brain. God bless. Now the, uh, Paul, you know, the one thing that the medical students might not like is ionized calcium or free calcium you know, you really don't want to let that sample just sit around for a long time. So you might want to send them to the lab with it uh, because oh, it, sure. it's sensitive to temperature. It's sensitive to um, the, like if it's exposed to the air, it's sensitive and, and pH. So basically you want to run the sample pretty quickly, like within 30 minutes. I tried to look this up. It's surprisingly hard to find like a source that very clearly, you know, spells out exactly what you should do. But if you're going to, if it's going to be sitting around for more than 30 minutes, Paul, you should put it in an ice slurry uh, mm -hmm. until it can be processed. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, if, if you're going to process it right away, it's okay. And or, I mean, um, or you get a bag of ice and then put it on the ice and then have the medical student run down to the lab. Yeah. 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 But if it's going to be processed right away, you know, they, it wasn't no, no. clear to me that you need they to do that all ice. the time. There's they can put it on ice. Okay. All right. That's, you heard it from Paul. You heard it from Paul. That's why it's a little bit of a pain to do the free calcium. So, all right. So thank you to Andrew. Thank you to Tony Brew for these corrections and omissions. And now uh, let's get to, let's get to a hotcake, Paul. So you're, you're up first. Yeah, I, I once again set myself up for success by having a study that has hard to pronounce names and also some um, complicated analyses. So this is from Edelstein et al. Uh, in 2023. This is November, so pretty recent uh, from the Annals of Internal Medicine. This is SARS-CoV-2 virologic rebound with nermatrovir ritonavir therapy and observational studies. So that's otherwise known as Paxlovid. We may go back and forth, so apologies in advance. And, and the reason I picked this paper, I don't know what it's been like for you all. I was on call for the practice the weekend before the, the holiday. And I was basically hammer paged by the answering service because everyone had tested positive for COVID. And there were lots of calls about, uh, I'm going to say Paxlovid. I'm going to beg indulgence because saying the generic is a challenge. You guys can break it every so often and correct me. And it's always a little bit challenging. I know that this for patients who are at higher risk, there's great evidence for it, but there's, there's the, the known concerns in terms of whether or not there's medication interactions. And then there's also the side effects. Then there is also this idea is, is there rebound COVID with these with this agent or not? So if after you take your course of nermatrovir, um, ritonavir, do after that course, do your, your COVID symptoms come back or do you have recurrence of sort of virologic shedding? And I think that's just sort of one more thing to talk about with patients before you start this medication, which we probably too often just kind of pull the trigger on without really doing our due diligence. So I was, that, that's why I was interested in this particular study. Uh, and so basically what this is, is they looked at, they come through data from this thing called the positives uh, cohort, which is the post-vaccination viral characteristic study. I, I guess you can get positives out of that. I don't know, like B minus, I suppose, but it's this perspective <laughs> longitudinal cohort study, um, that enrolled patients who have acute COVID and they measure things. They do longitudinal assessments of their quantitative viral load. They do viral cultures, they track symptom data. And so they sort of poured through this data and, and sort of compared patients who were on this antiviral and patients who weren't and looked at there was evidence of rebound, um, if virologic rebound or not. Are you guys with me so far? 
I follow. I'm with you, Paul, and I'm okay. very I'm very excited to dig into the results of this. I, it, it is, and I, I, I the way they they define virologic grandma, I thought was also interesting, and it's a little bit tortuous. So again, I hope you'll stay with me for this because I think it's correct. But it's a positive SARS-CoV-2 viral culture after a prior negative result or a sustained elevated viral load characterized by a combination of a nadir viral load so that their viral load dropped and then came back higher than um, four log 10 copies per milliliter, uh, followed by an increase at least one above that. So all of this, they, so it's a lot of numbers, what I'm not going to bother you with. So they had to have a dip in their viral load that went back up to a level that putatively can actually still transmit disease and, and can be capable of replication. So that's the important thing to know here. That's how they're defining virologic rebounds. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... The, the study, it's, it's, it's interesting. The top line results is this was a positive trial. We can get into actually sort of what they looked at and how they did it. But it did show significantly more biologic rebound in patients who took the antiviral than those who did not. We're talking 20% versus 2%. So like a markedly increased um, amount of biologic rebound. And this persisted even after you sort of accounted for demographics and underlying immunosuppression and sort of other clinical states. It really, it does seem to be after all your fancy um, statistical finagling, it was the antiviral and not some other characteristic of the patient themselves that actually caused this virologic rebound. So as I mentioned, a prospective observational cohort study using the sort of data set they've been looking at, the, the patients self-collected their nasal swabs after diagnosis that were picked up by an unfortunate courier three times a week for the first two weeks, then weekly thereafter until their viral loads were persistently negative. And that's important because the other studies that showed a, a much lower level of virologic rebound we're not checking that frequently. It's, it, the, these did a lot more sort of spot checks as opposed to some of the other studies, which showed a couple of points in time. Um, the specimens were analyzed. They, they did a viral load. They did a viral culture. And the patients completed a survey log every time they actually sent their swabs off. So they're swabbing their nose. They're filling out surveys um, for until, until their viral cultures are negative. The patients had acute COVID. They were ambulatory because that's who you're going to treat with, with uh, the antiviral medication. They were from around the Mass General Brigham Healthcare System for the most part. Though patients could self-enroll. And it was a reasonably small study. So they, they enrolled a, 200, a total of 173 patients. Um, but after exclusion criteria and some other stuff, they ended up with 127 patients that they looked at. Uh, and so not surprisingly, the treated patients were, were older because that's who you'd give the antiviral medication to. They had received more COVID vaccines. Again, that makes sense. I, it, mm -hmm. it tracks my older patients tend to be a little bit more on top of their, their vaccines and get more of the boosters and that kind of stuff. And the older patients are more likely to be immunosuppressed, which also makes sense because they're more likely to have immunosuppressing conditions and no one died in either group. So after sort of tracking all the stuff, it's the, the patients who received the antiviral medication are much more likely to have this virologic rebound that persisted for like two weeks um, after the treatment. And Paul, what I, what I found interesting about that, cause it's like, okay, so virologic rebound, what does this mean? Nobody was hospitalized for this rebound, right? No one died mm -hmm. from this and only about half the patients with rebound actually had symptoms of rebound, yes. right? Like they, they were detecting like un, uh, asymptomatic in, in half of the patients, right? That's exactly right, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my concern, and I, I'm, I dined to hear a whole take on this, but just in terms of my takeaway, and I won't give my hotcakes rating just yet, but my concern is, is less individual patient outcome and more public health outcome, right? Because as you're saying, these patients didn't present to the hospital. These patients may not even have rebound of their symptoms, but if they're still shedding virus up to two weeks later, that's past the time that we're telling patients to isolate. I worry about the the impact and the, the chance to actually sort of spread to others. So I, I worry about the treatment with the antiviral and what it means for how we're counseling patients after treatment in terms of when they're safe to sort of end isolation and kind of go back out into the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, makes sense to me. 
I um as you were describing the results, Paul, I was thinking in my head, you know, if I had to make a single sentence to sort of frame the results of the study, what is it? What do I take home? And the numbers you described translate to a 19% absolute increase in the risk of virologic rebound and a tenfold increase in the odds of virologic re rebound from uh, nirmatrelvir ritonavir. So it's it's big. And um, the, the, the whole question about an observational study like this is, are the results explained by the exposure that we think explains the results? Or could there be confounding that is the influence of other variables, whether we know about them or not? And in a small observational study like this, you know, you're, you're kind of at risk for confounding. Um, and partially for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, patients who who get treated with uh, Paxlovid or nirmatrelvir ritonavir are going to be older and uh, with more comorbidities and at higher risk for severe outcomes because that's the, the NIH guideline recommendation uh, is to treat people who are at uh, greatest risk for progression to severe disease. Mm. So off the bat, you know that there's going to be differences in people who are treated uh, with Paxlovid and people who are not. So our interpretation of these results, whether there could be any confounding that really threatens the validity of this conclusion, kind of depends on a close reading of the paper. And um, in their table one, they uh, show you the characteristics of the cohort, of the two cohorts. And uh, instead of a p-value, they have something called a standardized difference. Um, and this is something that is often encountered in uh, observational studies where propensity matching is used to uh, try to select comparison groups that are as similar as possible. And the authors talk about how in this study, they really didn't have enough people to do that. But the standardized mean differences really show you just how different these groups were. Typically, a difference of less than 0.1 is considered to be kind of close uh, for the purposes of comparison. And basically, all of these standardized differences differ by more than 0.1. So the groups were, were very different. And uh, patients who got treated were older, uh, more COVID vaccines, more immunosuppression. Um, so really, really a lot of differences. Um, I can talk about this paper for a long time. Last thing I'll say is that uh, there's one kind of interesting um, analysis they did, which I, I think uh, kind of increases my confidence that this um, could be causal uh, rather than just being associated with who gets treated with nirmatrelvir ritonavir. And uh, that was uh, the trend towards rebound if taken, uh, if nirmatrelvir ritonavir was taken within two days of symptom onset compared with taken later. And that makes some mechanistic sense, right? Because you might uh, need some, you know, initial time for your immune system to start to respond to a viral infection before just, you know, treating it with an antiviral and sort of quashing that response. So the hypothesis is that if you start treatment too early, you know, maybe that's blunting our immune system's ability to clear the virus. And that kind of fits with, you know, why would these people shed virus longer? Well, maybe it's because by treating uh, early, we're effectively blunting our own immune response. So that's kind of a nice feature of this study. It, it's by no means definitive, but it, it certainly makes mechanistic sense and it um, supports that this might be uh, a causal association. There's an editorial that I think is worth reading that accompanies it in the annals uh, by Myron Cohen and Elizabeth Brown. And um, they they raise some interesting points, and they also just have some interesting insight. Um, you know, there's some authors are saying like, should we delay when we give it? Because Pfizer is actually studying the benefits of a second course, which is yeah. not surprising because they sell the drug. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, but the <laughs> the French the French research agency um, 
is also do, studying five days versus 10 days in, a, um, in immunocompromised patients. And then the authors mentioned that the full FDA approval of this drug, the price has been set at $1,390 for a five-day course. So if we're going to do two five-day courses, Paul, that's big bucks. Cha-ching. Cha-ching. Um, so hopefully uh, Pfizer's not going to charge twice that if they decide that we need to give a 10-day course. The other thing is there's another, like lo- I guess, longer-acting antiviral called Encetrelvir, um, which is in the pipeline, I guess. And it looks like it does not have viral rebound or clinical rebound uh, so far. They have not seen that. So I thought those were interesting insights um, from someone with expert knowledge of the topic. I want to remind people, Rahul, you pointed this out. There, There was a press release, a Pfizer press release, because the high-risk trial that got this uh, drug approved, right, it worked to to prevent hospitalization and death, right? Uh, but in the standard risk group, they did not even go for that endpoint because they knew that people at standard risk are not getting hospitalized or dying from COVID. But they tried to go for does it shorten the duration of symptoms because that's a you know that's probably a reason a lot of people call and ask for it. And sure. actually, it did not, and they never published that study. Um, but you can still find the press release, which I think we should put in the show notes here. So. Uh, Paul, maybe this is getting to your question. I prescribe it for people over 65 who I think will not do well with COVID. And that's my practice as of now. And I'd be curious to hear what you guys do. That's that's exactly my practice. You know, and I, I think that follows the data, I guess, in terms of, I was going to ask you, how how might this change your counseling about the patients that you prescribe it to, or would it at all? Like I, I one of the reasons I chose this paper is because I wasn't, I read it and I was like, hmm, that sounds important, but I don't know what to do with what they found. And I'm still not sure. So I'm, I'm asking people smarter yeah. than me. Even the the editorials and the the journal watch are like, it's weird. I would still treat with the I would still treat the patients who yeah. need it the way that you would, which I think is correct. But I, I just don't know how this information I, changes things right now. But I feel like it should. I just don't know how. Yeah. I just yeah. tell them if they're over 65 and I think they're gonna do fine and they're not feeling bad and they call me, they're like, I've had it for three or four days. I feel okay, feels like a cold. I, you know, should I take this? And I'm I would I'm usually like, you know. I wouldn't because I think you'll do fine and you have this chance of rebound. If they're over 65, COPD, heart failure, kidney failure, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to give it and just tell them you might get rebound symptoms, but I, I do, you know, my goal is to keep you alive and out of the hospital. Yeah. The, the NIH guidelines are very conservative on this point. I reviewed them in advance of our recording and they basically say, um, as you pointed out, the re- recurrence of COVID symptoms and viral detection uh, after treatment has not been associated with progression to severe disease. And so they recommend um, against using uh, concern about recurrence or rebound to avoid as a reason to avoid uh, treatment. So just like you got, y'all are saying, for patients who are high risk for progression to severe disease, it's still in line with NIH guidelines uh, to treat them. Yeah. And I know we spent a lot of time on this, but I there, there are also some data suggest that there might be prevention of or a reduction in long-term COVID for patients who receive this uh, medication as well. So I, I basically, my, my practice is to review these data with the patients and and do shared decision-making for, for everyone, which I know is an obvious thing to say, but truly this is one of the cases where I do talk about the evidence, what we know, what we don't know, just because I think it's important to be transparent about that stuff. Mm. Paul, would you like to give a hotcakes rating? I think it's important. I'm going to stand by that. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it four, four hotcakes. Um, 
it does it, I, it's it not practice changing so it doesn't get to five because I, I don't know what I, I still don't haven't fully appreciated the impact of my practice but I'm glad that they did it and I think it will eventually change practice you know uh I wonder if because we're we're sort of in cough and cold land here Rahul if I should just go get into talking about phenylephrine here because have, have you guys seen people taking phenylephrine or have you noticed that it's it happens to be in a lot of products uh when you buy cough and cold over the counter I feel like it's kind of everywhere yeah. or used to be everywhere yeah so <laughs> right. this you know this happened in September uh where there's this FDA advisory committee um, recommended that oral phenylephrine be removed from the OTC monograph of drugs that have this GRACE designation, which which stands for generally regarded as safe and effective because essentially oral phenylephrine has been proven to be ineffective, you know, quite convincingly. And there's been these two pharmacology experts, and I'll link to an article that talks all about them, but they've since 2005 or 6 they've been really trying to get this drug removed from the market because just because it doesn't work um not necessarily that it's it's dangerous so if the FDA follows this recommendation from this advisory panel it would have to be removed from lots of products i mean as you might imagine the over the counter cough and cold medicines are like a 10 billion dollar a year industry and phenylephrine is you know responsible for more than a billion dollars, probably closer to two billion dollars of those sales. And this is a medicine, Paul, that does not work. And it's because it's so old that it was kind of grandfathered in before they had to prove that it that it worked well. Yeah, I, I don't know. It feels like there's some sort of agenda against. I, the only reason I say that, Matt, is because none of them work. None of like, them I work. Know, oh, well, that's the point I'm getting to, too. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to hijack you, but no, yeah, no. It's, it's weird that like phenylephrine is the is the thing that we're going after. And really, a lot of the stuff that we sort of like, yeah, I guess you can try this if you want to, does not have a whole lot of compelling evidence behind it. Yeah. So why would they ever want to study these, Paul? Because there's like, you just put an antihistamine, an analgesic, uh, a decongestant, and a mucolytic agent all in, in a product in all various combinations, give it a, give it a fancy name or a fun name, cough, cold, flu, whatever. And, sure. and then, you know, um, that's, that's what's been happening. But, uh, for pediatrics, they say, don't give these to kids because, you know, we don't mm. know that they work and give them honey. And, you know, if they need antibiotics, that's one thing, but this, th these medicines you shouldn't mess around with. Now, phenylephrine, the oral phenylephrine, it's deactivated. Um, it can be deactivated in the gut. It can be deactivated in the liver. So it's it's not very bioavailable. And they've known this for a long time. It's just, it's funny how long it's taken for it to be taken off the market. And these guys that uh, had phenylephrine, you know, taken or, or that led this charge to take down phenylephrine, they're like, and that's not the only one out there. They're like, guaifenesin, benzonitate. Why are those out there? They're like, we don't think those work either. So this is a whole industry that, you know, might be shooken up by this. I guess the the hope would be that maybe we'll find stuff that is actually effective. You know, maybe they'll start actually studying to look for something because this would be a huge market if you could actually find something that worked. Yeah, for sure. But I think most patients know that stuff doesn't work that well. Paul, even Sudafed, which they keep behind the counter, if you look at the data for that, it's like a 6% better than placebo or something is what I was yeah. seeing. So- yeah, Rahul, the data are super compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just struck by how it's an illustration of how much stuff there is out there that we do that we just kind of, you know, don't have the time or the sort of um, sufficiently high priority 
of the question to yes. sort of look into the data. And there's just so many opportunities to kind of, you know, go deep down the rabbit hole. And, and this is great because this has, you know, a big uh, um, slice of the financial pie. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, nothing nothing is too common. Nothing is too boring. The, the experts in these articles, Paul and Rahul, so for you, just to give a clinical pearl what you can tell your patients, the, the topical decongestants, you know, they do, do seem to work better, uh, certainly safer than the oral ones. So you can give the oxymetazolam, which uh, Brandon is Afrin or the generic version of it. You can give, if there's a, a intranasal phenylephrine, that can be given too. And uh, I think good old, you know, saline irrigation, saline nasal spray, that sort of stuff, you know, works, works fine. Um, so I... I would just say the topical stuff is is the way to go for for sinus symptoms and uh, yeah, and it's a chance to two weeks later use the phrase rhinitis medicamentosa in clinic and feel good about yeah. yourself. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so don't give oral phenylephrine along with uh, the Paxlovid if you're going to be prescribing that <laughs> that that agent. Um, all right, so Rahul, last but not least. You have a trial to present, and I guess we'll have to ask Paul to comment on the name. So, Rahul, do you want to tell him about the trial? Yes. Let's go back to Bloodland. Um, so, this is the MINT trial. Paul, can I get your thoughts? Well, tell me what MINT stands for, and then I'll report back. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, Rahul, okay. did you, I, did you I realize could... that the way that Paul evaluates trial <laughs> names, most people just go, is it a cool word? And then that that sounds like a cool trial. Paul goes by... The word has to be cool, but it also has to be like logical from mm. what the you know the the words in the study. Well, let me see if I can reverse engineer this. So this <laughs> trial, this this was a study in uh, a recent issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. This was by Carson and colleagues, and this is called restrictive or liberal transfusion strategy in myocardial infarction and anemia. This episode is brought to you by Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that listens, transcribes, and writes medical documentation for you. And let me tell you, this is amazing. You just start it up on your device, you have your conversation, maybe make eye contact with your patient, talk about what you wanna do, and at the end of the visit, your note is already written for you because this thing, it's like a virtual scribe and it learns over time, it learns your style. So by the time you walk out of the room, your note is written. And this way, you can focus on your patient, you can have conversations, and hopefully you're not going to be up all night standing there charting. This was invented by Gabby, a family med physician, and Arez, a computer engineer. They came up with this as a solution that could help alleviate this burden of overworked clinicians everywhere. And I know y'all are out there in our audience. This product is HIPAA compliant, it costs only $99 a month, and your time is worth a lot more than that. It's very easy to learn and use. You can try Freed for free right now by going to freed.ai and listeners of Curbsiders can use the code CURB50 for $50 off their first month. That's freed.ai and get $50 off your first month with the code CURB50. So maybe myocardial infarction transfusion is where they Needing took Needing transfusion maybe would be in there. That yeah. Would be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So not great is, is my, that. is my take. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that that's out of the way. So what was the research question? Well, this study was asking for patients with acute MI and anemia, 
should we be using a liberal or a restrictive transfusion strategy? And that was uh, defined as a liberal being transfusing for a hemoglobin of less than 10 and a restrictive strategy transfusing for a hemoglobin less than seven. Um, which of those should we be pursuing in order to reduce death and MI in, at 30 days? So why is this study important? Well, the most recent professional society guidelines um, on blood transfusions to hospitalized patients actually don't take a stance on whether a liberal or a restrictive transfusion strategy is better for patients with acute MI and anemia due to a lack of evidence. Um, but in response to this study, uh, the up-to-date authors uh, on the relevant topic actually now recommend a liberal transfusion strategy in this setting, even though this was a negative study. So um, what were the top-line results of this study? Um, I'll just tell you, you know, uh, what to take home from this paper, and then uh, I'll open it up for questions. So what did the authors find? Well, at 30 days, death or MI happened in 16.9% of patients in the restrictive group and 14.5% of patients in the liberal group. And that corresponded to a rate ratio of 1.15 with a confidence interval of 0.99 to 1.34. Okay, the p-value of 0 0.07. So crosses one. Crosses one. That's the thing to sort of interpret from that. And so the study was powered to look for a difference of uh, 20%. And what they found was a non-significant uh, point estimate of a difference of 15%. Um, the other thing I'll say is among patients with a, a type 1 MI, meaning an MI due to vessel occlusion from plaque rupture, um, a benefit of a liberal transfusion strategy was seen. The rate ratio there was 1.32, and the confidence interval did not include 1. Uh, and that was uh, corresponded to an absolute risk reduction in death uh, or MI of 4.4%, a number needed to treat of 23 over 30 days. So guys, what questions do you have uh, before we get into the, the specifics of the study? So this study made headlines, but the the primary endpoint was not, you know, was not statistically significant. And then there's this subgroup analysis of type 1 MI that looks like, hey, maybe there's something there. But, you know, that, that seems like there's got to be some risk in interpreting that and just giving everyone with type 1 MI a liberal transfusion strategy based on this. That's perfect. And I like your framing of the overall trial result as negative. Um, and I'll just remind listeners, you know, the, the distinction of negative is a little arbitrary, but you got to choose where you're going to draw the line somewhere. You could also call this inconclusive. You could call this null. Um, in, the, in the main analysis, a benefit of the uh, liberal transfusion strategy was not shown. And uh, as you pointed out, Matt, we did see a benefit in a subgroup analysis. So what we have to decide in our appraisal is, are the results um, you know, mechanistically sound? Uh, could it be the case that uh, this uh, negative or null study was falsely negative or null? Are there sources of chance or bias that could explain that? And how do we take that into account in our appraisal? Paul, is there anything that stuck out to you about this? The framing of this I find fascinating. Like, and I, I, this may not even be the forum for it. You know, I, I think we're sort of talking about methodology and the statistics, but the language used around it this was discussed as if it were a positive trial. And even though, you know, at, at the end when they're like, this is a negative trial, but still like we're, we're changing practice based on it. Like it's even, there's a notorious New England Journal of Medicine tweet about how this approached significance. And you're like, oh, is that what we're doing now? We're just approaching significance. We better not touch it. It was presented as a positive study, even though it did not meet its primary, which I'm, which I'm not saying it's not important. And it's not relevant. And we shouldn't change practice based on it. But I think that the way that the evidence was framed, I thought was, Interesting to say the least, and I'm, I'm excited to hear sort of your specific breakdown as to why this would change practice, even though at the end of the day, the thing that they were looking for is not the thing that happened. Yeah, 
So, yeah, I mean, you raise an important point that, you know, we could easily uh, go off on a tangent on. So I'm going to have to try to keep my blinders on. So let me give you a little more detail about uh, how the study was done and uh, who the patients were and kind of the sources of chance and bias. So um, this was a multi-center, open-label, randomized superiority trial in adults hospitalized with acute MI and a hemoglobin of less than 10 were eligible for inclusion. And the included patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to either a liberal or a restrictive transfusion strategy. The primary outcome in this study was all-cause death or recurrent MI at 30 days. And this was assessed by phone and review of medical records. And the protocol in this uh, trial really worked. Um, by day three, the mean hemoglobin in the liberal group was 10.5. And in the restrictive group, it was 8.9. So about a 1.6 uh, gram per deciliter difference. Um, but this did come at kind of a high cost. Uh, people in the liberal group required about three and a half times as many units of blood as people in the restricted group. So who are the patients? Um, this was 3,500 uh, older adults, mean age of 72, um, mostly in the United States, Canada, and France. Uh, they were randomized about three days after their index MI. And by that time, 30% um, of patients in this study had already been revascularized. And then they you know, had a high burden of cardiac comorbidities, but I'll just point out that over half of patients in this study had a type 2 MI, meaning due to demand ischemia, and 40% had a type 1 MI due to plaque rupture and vessel occlusion. So are there any um, features of what I've described so far that sort of stick out to you? Any questions people have at this point? No, it makes sense. I'm just waiting for you to tell us like how, like how, what were the sources of chance and bias and like how much, how much stock should we put in this trial? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the cliffhanger that we uh, kind of left uh, Paul's comment at. Um, so what do we do with this, this negative or inconclusive study? And why are the up-to-date authors making, you know, a definitive recommendation based on this? So sources of chance, um, and by that, I mean, you know, random variation from the truth. So I think that this study was effectively underpowered because they found a lower than expected risk reduction in the point estimate. Okay. Um, 15% versus uh, 20%, was, which is what the study was powered for. And this could be due to heterogeneity of the treatment effect if the effect of a liberal transfusion strategy is really only seen in patients with type 1 MI, okay? Um, and you, this hypothesis, to me, makes some mechanistic sense. Maybe perfusion really matters when the pipe is clogged, you know, mm -hmm. and you're, you're fighting to get any little bit of oxygen you can through, you know, a stenosed vessel. Um, and maybe in a, a supply demand setting, maybe in that situation, increasing uh, oxygen delivery through transfusion doesn't actually matter that much. Maybe just reducing the demand is what matters. So in my mind, this would leave the study underpowered because less than half of patients you know, had a type 1 MI, and so this would bias towards a null finding. So that's one possibility. And then some potential sources of bias towards a null finding. Um, it really stuck uh, in my head that 30% of patients in both groups were revascularized before randomization. And it's kind of that same idea that, you know, if maximizing oxygen delivery, you know, is what matters in a type 1 MI, it seems to me like that would matter the most when the pipe is clogged. And so that, I think, would also bias towards a null finding. And, you know, there's a couple other things that kind of made the groups more similar than different. Um, you know, about a third of patients in both groups got an average of two to three units of red cells uh, before randomization, which really reflects the sort of strong desire people have to transfuse these patients. 
Um, and there was differential adherence to the protocol. Um, discontinuation of the protocol uh, happened in 2.5% uh, of the restrictive group and 13.7% of the liberal group, uh, which was mostly due to volume overload and transfusion reactions. So um, I think taken together, all of these um, features, you know, at least open the possibility, this is far from conclusive, but this is kind of what we have to do with the data we have, at least open the possibility that it might be the case that patients with type 1 MI, vessel occlusion, they might experience a benefit from a liberal transfusion strategy, particularly before the, um, the pipe can be unclogged, particularly before revascularization. So to me, this study um, kind of makes me feel like if I thought that a patient was going to benefit from a transfusion in the setting of acute MI, as long as you're careful about volume overload, it's not clearly wrong to transfuse them to a liberal transfusion strategy. And um, I kind of wonder if it might be the kind of thing where we're um, exposing a lot of people to transfusions in order to try to get this uh, intervention to the the subset of people in whom it might actually have a benefit. Yeah, I think that's that's really well said, Rahul. And I, I my my takeaway is not quite as nuanced as yours because you're much smarter than I am. But like, I just bah. I think this is I don't know. I one of those things where there are so many factors that play into the decision to transfuse and not, and so many reasons to have anemia above and beyond you know, and what someone's acclimated to. And I know you can sort of make statistical adjustments for that, but I just, I think having an absolute number <laughs> like here transfuse here, no, like I just, I just don't know that it works that way. And I think that's why you're going to have so many heterogeneous results. So I, it's, I, I think it's a challenge to parse out and you're probably have to sort of divide and subdivide until you find the right patient population, but it's not, yeah, I'm glad in 30 days that there seemed to be an impact in the outcome, but like also being exposed to that many transfusions, there's the development of antibodies and sort of longer term consequences. Blood is extraordinarily scarce right now. So sort of being willing to, so it's, it's just, I don't know that it's going to be as straightforward as we like it to be ever. And I, I think that your subdivision makes a lot of sense to me more than anything else that I can think about with this trial. Yeah, no, and and it's a it's a good reminder. I mean, there are you know costs to transfusion and and harms and the adverse effects in this study. Um, uh, transfusion associated circulatory circulatory overload or TACO and uh, febrile non hemolytic transfusion reactions uh, both were um, overall rare on the order of one to two percent, but they were more common in the uh, liberal transfusion group. So it's important to kind of uh, be upfront with ourselves about the cost of this strategy. Rahul, how many hotcakes? So I think this might be one of the uh, most complete studies that we are going to have in this space. And I think given the sort of uh, totality of all the, the prior evidence, um, I think that this is a great exercise in us needing to use our expertise to make decisions in setting of imperfect data. So I just love this kind of thing. So I'm going to give this four out of five hotcakes. Okay. Well, I, boys, I, I think we've did it. That's, <laughs> I think we've done it. Uh, that's, that's the show. I think we should get to an outro because, uh, I don't know, Paul, your cat seems like he wants your attention. He's starved out of his mind. So apologies <laughs> for all of that. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> nice, distinguished, not surprisingly. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, each month you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So you can email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Uh, it also really helps the show a lot if you subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. It really does help new people find the show. A reminder that you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders. We can't bonus episodes and all sorts of other perks. 
A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And a special thanks to Dr. Rahul Ganatra and Dr. Paul Williams for helping to write and produce this episode. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Jen Watto runs our Patreon. Chris the Chew Man Chew moderates our Discord and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Rahul Balanth Ganatra. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.